Hi, I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. And you're listening to The Doctor's Art, a podcast that explores meaning in medicine. Throughout our medical training and career, we have pondered, what makes medicine meaningful? Can a stronger understanding of this meaning create better doctors? How can we build healthcare institutions that nurture the doctor-patient connection? What can we learn about the human condition from accompanying our patients in times of suffering? In seeking answers to these questions, we meet with deep thinkers working across healthcare, from doctors and nurses to patients and healthcare executives, those who have collected a career's worth of hard-earned wisdom. Probing the moral heart that beats at the core of medicine, we will hear stories that are by turns heartbreaking, amusing, inspiring, challenging, and enlightening. We welcome anyone curious about why doctors do what they do. Join us as we think out loud about what illness and healing can teach us about some of life's biggest questions. Over the past year, we have spoken with more than 50 clinicians about what makes their work meaningful. But in this episode, we are changing things up and speaking with someone who has been disenchanted with their experiences working in medicine. Our guest is Dr. Argyvan Salas, a minimally invasive and bariatric surgeon who conducts research on gender equity and implicit bias in medicine. At Stanford Hospital, she advises initiatives to promote physician well-being and diversity. During the COVID-19 pandemic, her frontline experiences were featured in Newsweek, NBC, CBS, and other press outlets. Over the course of our conversation, Dr. Salas shares fiercely honest accounts about the difficulties she has faced as an immigrant, minority, and woman in medicine. Her stories are by turn saddening and amusing, but ultimately invoke us to reflect on the part we can all play to create a more just and inclusive path for current and future physicians. Argavan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the show. No, thanks for having me. To kick us off, can you share with us what first drew you to a medical career? Well, I do not have an inspirational story, I will tell you that. I was an engineering major, biomedical engineering major in college, and for various reasons, decided I didn't want to do that as a career. And then it was a very rational process of like, okay, I've taken these courses, what career pathways are available to me with these courses, you know, without having to repeat or take extra long to complete my undergraduate studies. And medicine was right there. You know, I had all the things. So I was like, yeah, that seems good. Being a little glib about it. I mean, I did really love math and science and had done a ton of service work all through high school and college. So I thought this would be a good way to use my interest and passion for science and working with people, you know, to try to do something good. But, but it's very shallow if you think about it, that, that rationale. And, and sometimes I say like, I'm probably one of those people who should have gotten screened out in the med school admission process. Like I had not shadowed literally anyone I had no doctors in my family. Like, I really had no clue what it was I was signing up for. Um, But somehow I snuck through. Well, um, I mean, at what point did you realize that, yes, this is this was the right choice after all? Hopefully you're. (laughs) (laughs) That, 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 That qualifies as the top five most pregnant pauses we've ever had on the podcast. I'm I'm not sure how you quite convey the full weight of that pause, but that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Rewind. 
what Henry meant to say was. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I cannot say with certainty. Actually, I can probably say with certainty medicine is probably not the right place for me. But yeah, I, I, I would not say I ever had a moment when I was like, yes, this was the right choice. I am on the right path. Everything's great. Like I never had a moment like that. In fact, I'm a person who, for better or worse, my disposition is to always be questioning and doubting. It's not particularly healthy. But when I started medical school, I was like, I, this is not what I was expecting or hoping for. You know, people who know about medical training know that the first two years of medical school are spent really memorizing a lot of things. And of course, those of us who get to medical school usually have quite a large capacity for memorization. So that's not the problem. It just felt like such a dumb thing to do. Like, why do I need to sit here and memorize things? I much prefer, you know, deriving formulas and understanding why and how things happen than memorizing like steps in a cycle that no one understands the rationale behind because like, we don't know why things happen. And so that was really frustrating to me. So I took the LSAT because I thought maybe I would go to law school. Maybe that would be a better fit for me. <laughs> that, that, that was the moment, Henry, when she was studying for the LSAT. That's the moment she realized. <laughs> well, I talked to a lot of people to get advice. And, and the general consensus was, you know, maybe do third year with the first, you know, full clinical year that we do in, in traditional med schools and, and then decide. And if you really don't like third year, then maybe apply. So I, I took the LSAT. I did not apply. I went into third year and third year, to be honest, is like pretty fun. You learn a lot. Um, you're constantly in a new environment and it's challenging and it's different. So, you know, a lot of it is acclimation. And I thought, yeah, okay, like maybe one of these things would work for me. And then I ended up choosing surgery, which we can talk about that decision if you want. But anyway, I chose surgery. And then most surgical residency programs, especially at academic places in this country, require or incorporate like a few years of doing something else. Traditionally, it's like a basic science experience. But in um, the last you know decade or 15 years or so, people have started doing um, like other degree programs like MBAs, MPHs, whatever, just you know other professional development experiences. So anyway... During that time, that's when I actually got my PhD. But also during my PhD, I thought, I don't know if any of this is right for me. So I went and did an internship at a management consulting firm, ended up, you know, just doing that internship and not going on to a career in management consulting. But I I share all that to say, like, I'm constantly questioning whether I am on the so-called right path for me. I know that there is no like one right path, but am I doing what makes the most sense for me and my skills and my interest? And yeah, again, I'm not sure that's a good trait, but that's what I do. Argaman, I'm sorry, you must have missed in the mail the script we sent you where you're supposed to be telling inspirational stories about how much you love medicine. I, it's <laughs> probably in your mailbox. If you want to go check, we can hold on a minute and then you can just come back. Okay. <laughs> You're right. I um I actually I, I do think about this a lot because I, I do not have the same medicine is the best thing ever script that most physicians share, at least in public spaces. And actually I think about that a lot because there is definitely a social pressure within our profession to only say good things about the profession. There's also you know, we have, we have, certainly have privilege in a lot of ways with the um, education that we have, the training that we have, the, the role that we're able to play in people's lives. And there is some 
some financial security with, you know, knowing people will always be sick, they will always need doctors, etc. So we have a lot of privileges. So it feels a little bit ick, right, to say, well, but this career is not great because of XYZ. So I think that's part of it too. But I really think that we are misleading people. Now, to be fair, I don't think we would have that many people becoming doctors if they knew what it was they were getting into. Like, I think a lot of how this functions for our society is people's lack of understanding and awareness of what it really means. Not to say that there's not good things about being a doctor. For sure there are. But I think for many of us, they end up outweighing a lot of the challenges, partially because our systems are so flawed and there's not enough support and, you know, all the burden that we carry for doing such um, really emotional work day after day for week after week and month after month and year after year, which I don't think we've really got adequate support for. So anyway, I think for these reasons, people don't often share their criticisms of the profession. And there's just immense pressure to focus only on the things that we like or that we love and be that inspiring story that you're looking for. Um, But I just can't do it in good conscience, to be honest. And I really struggle with that too, because obviously we need people to be doctors. Like I'm only getting older um, and we'll only have more health problems. Uh, You know, I need people, we all need people to to care for us. But I, I just like, can't look a person in the face and say, yes, you should be a doctor. A couple of things in reaction to that. One is that it's interesting that I've started going, my alma mater doesn't have an affiliated medical school. And so people who are there who are thinking of going into medical school are don't really have anyone to talk to, right, about what it's going to be like. And so as soon as I became an attending, basically, I started going there on my own expense once every semester. They have like a, you know, a pre-med seminar class, as many colleges do. And basically, I go there and give a lecture that is literally called Counting the Cost. Hmm. And I go through and, you know, do all of the nitty gritty stuff. Cause like you, there are no doctors in my family. I had no exposure to what medicine, I mean, I had shadowed doctors for a couple of days, but like I had no, I didn't know what a residency was. I didn't know how long medical school was. I didn't know what a fellowship was. I, didn't, I mean, I just didn't know any of that stuff. Right. So I go back there and just go through the nitty gritties of you know, how many years is this going to be? How much debt are you going to have? When can you start paying it back? How much does an intern make? Like, you know, just all of that stuff, because nobody tells you that, right? At least uh, for me, I had no idea. And my point is not to persuade or dissuade. It's just to inform, because I feel like you should be able to do That's why it's called counting the cost. You should be able to count the cost when you're making that decision. Let me go back, though. So I want to, because your training ended up being, I mean, as it is for everyone, but in your case, even more so in different and unusual ways, ended up impacting the rest of your life so much. Can you talk first about why did you decide to go into surgery? So third year, as I I mentioned earlier, like third year was actually mostly fun. I mean, obviously, it's challenging and long hours and et cetera, but you're always performing right in your third year. And that's exhausting. But I really did enjoy learning about how different specialties work and learning about different disease processes in in ways that you don't in your first two years. So literally in every rotation, I was like, maybe I could do this. You know, it was like neurology. Huh. Maybe I could be a neurologist. And then psychiatry. Huh. Maybe I could be a psychiatrist. And then it was peds. And I was like, huh, kind of like the kids, you know, like (laughs) that's how it went for me in my third year. And um, by the end of the third year, the two things I liked the most were radiology and surgery. And 
people think that's weird, but that's what I liked. And for different reasons, obviously. And so I actually did sub eyes in both of them. And in the end, I chose surgery because of the people, you know, that's often, I think that's a very cliche thing. That's often what people say. Um, But specifically because of the women who I had worked with, both residents and faculty, who I just thought were so smart and funny and cool and real. And they were people who I aspired to be like. And it felt like if I went into surgery, I'd be joining this like cool club. So that was, you know, a big motivator. Obviously, like, we talk about the specifics of surgery. It's very gratifying. You get to do things for people in a way that other physicians don't. You know, like someone comes in with appendicitis, we can take out their appendix, their pain is gone. It's pretty amazing. And it's different from the work that a lot of other doctors do with, you know, prescribing medications or so on. And I'm not at all like looking down on that. I'm saying it's different. And so I really liked that immediate gratification of being able to use my hands and do something physically that was going to improve these patients' health. But really, like everything in medicine has cool aspects to it. So in the end, for me, it was that I wanted to work with these people. And I liked that surgery was like physically active. You know, you're not sedentary as a surgeon. So I thought that was a plus. But honestly, that was a miscalculation on my part because I thought that I would be healthier because, you know, like I said, I was down to radiology and surgery and radiology. I thought, oh, I'll just be sitting at a desk. If I'm sitting at a desk, I will be eating. I just know myself. If I'm sitting at a desk, I will be eating through the day. I will have, you know, whatever unhealthy snacks. And then I will just gain weight and be a really unhealthy person. But the miscalculation is that radiologists do not work the same number of hours as surgeons. So while we may be sedentary for a certain number of hours in the day, they have all the other hours in the day to go do non-sedentary things and to eat healthy food and, and live a life, which, you know, a lot of surgeons don't have in our lives. So, Okay. So then, you know, I have to imagine that when you you're coming out of medical school, you're, you're entering into your residency program. I imagine that you had a vision of what life was going to look like. You were going to, you know, go through and finish your training and become a, I don't know, world renowned, something, something surgeon in some place you were dreaming about at the time. But what I'm trying to say is that what I gather from what I know of your story is that the life you are living now and what you spend a lot of your time doing now is not, let's say necessarily the life that the picture that you would have painted back however many years ago when you were entering into residency. So what happened? Yeah, well, that's definitely an accurate assessment. I mean, if I had a vision, it was definitely a vision of being a surgeon and being in the operating room and having patients in the hospital and and doing the work that I trained for so long to do. And I did that for a few years. So after residency, I did a fellowship um, in bariatric and minimally invasive surgery, then took a faculty job at an academic center doing that kind of surgery. And I'm really sorry to interrupt you here, but I, for one, did not know what minimally invasive and bariatric surgery were until I was on my surgery rotation in my third year of medical school. So since we have a lot of medical trainees and even pre-medical students on the show, can you just give us like a one or two liner of like what that work entails? For sure. You know, minimally invasive surgery is an approach to doing procedures, unlike say colorectal surgery or hepatobiliary surgery, or even surgical oncology, where the focus is on a specific 
set of diseases or a specific organ, minimally invasive surgery is just a way of doing surgery. So you can have minimally invasive approaches to any specialty, pretty much. All it means is that we're using smaller incisions. And typically, at least for general surgery, when we talk about minimally invasive surgery, we're talking about laparoscopic surgery for the most part. So that's small incisions made on the abdomen. And then we put instruments and a camera through those small incisions to be able to do the surgery that we do on the inside. And then Uh, be able to just have those small incisions instead of making the other option would be to make a big incision and then actually get our hands in uh, to the abdomen and then do whatever it is we need to do. It's usually the exact same thing that we would be doing on the inside. It's just whether we're doing it with our hands in there or with these instruments through small holes. And you can, I think it's intuitive to understand that it's, it's better for the recovery of the patient. If we're able to do something minimally invasively, they have less pain, they spend less time in the hospital, they recover more quickly, et cetera. And bariatric surgery is, some people used to call it weight loss surgery. Now it's often called metabolic and bariatric surgery because uh, there are, are metabolic changes that occur. And um, the basic idea, there's multiple different specific procedures that people can do that's part of bariatric surgery. But the overall idea is to help people be able to treat their obesity so that their overall health is improved. Thank you for that. And now back to your your story, you were talking about how you uh, landed in an academic position after training. Right. So I had this job, which, you know, it was some things that I wanted, like it was an academic job. I I had a PhD and, you know, really wanted to do research. So it made sense for me to be at an academic center, but it also was some things I didn't want. Like it was geographically in a place where I didn't have a lot of social support um, and was just there by myself. And so that wasn't ideal for me. And it was far from friends and family, but you know, your first job is no job is perfect. So, you know, I took the job and unfortunately Things unraveled pretty quickly, you know, within the first 12 to 18 months or so. That has to do with a a lot of things, which we probably don't have time to get into. But what I can say is that I, in that time, did not feel that my clinical practice was supported. And I also did not feel that my research was supported. And that's because of specific things that were or were not done. Uh, For example, I can say on the clinical side that when I started the job, I use this example often because it's the easiest or it's a very easy one to understand. I was not given preference cards. And so here's what preference cards are. The, the, they're basically a recipe for how we do a procedure. So it tells everyone in the operating room, the various staff members, that if we're going to, for example, take, take out somebody's gallbladder, we need to have these instruments in the room. We need to have the room set up this way. For example, they would know that we need the laparoscopic equipment, that we need the monitors that go with the laparoscopic equipment, et cetera. Without those preference cards or without having that recipe, it, the staff has to kind of make it up. And that means they're not going to get it right because it would be impossible for them to. And then what that leads to is a lot of inefficiency and the frustration on the surgeon side of just constantly repeating over and over and over again what it is that we need. And and it's not, by the way, these preference cards, it's not like there's five things on the card. It's often 100, 150, 200 things on the card, depending on the complexity of the procedure. So it's really very taxing for every single procedure to have to go through that process. And I had to deal with that for four months. And that's not normal. 
you know, they're, and that's frustrating, not for just for me, but again, for the staff as well, because they also want to be able to do their job well, and they want their day to go smoothly. They want everyone's day to go smoothly. But when they don't have that information, there's very little they can do. And one workaround for if someone else finds themselves in the situation is, you know, if you at least have consistent staffing. So if, if you have the same people who are helping you, then of course, they start to write notes for themselves, then they can use those. But I wasn't given that either. And so it was just like Groundhog Day every day. And as much as that's frustrating in any job to like not have the support for the work that you need to do, we have to remember that in this job, there are other people's lives at stake. And I'm the one who bears the responsibility for that. And I'm the one who's entered into a contract of sorts with that patient. And they've put their trust in me. Not understanding, I think that I'm only one part of the equation. There's a circulator, there's a tech, there's an assistant, there's an anesthesiologist, and those people may be multiple people for any one case. And I don't have control in most of our academic centers, this is true. I don't have control as a surgeon over who any of those people are for any given case, nor do I know in advance who those people are going to be. And so Again, that's just one of the easier to understand examples of like how I did not feel my clinical practice was supported because it's very difficult to be starting out your first job as a physician, any kind of physician, no matter how long you've trained, it's the first time that really the buck stops with you. And that's a very different experience that I think is hard to understand until you go through the transition yourself. And to do that and know that you have the responsibility and to care very much about your patients, to have very high standards, but then not be given the tools with which you would be able to deliver that quality of care is an extremely challenging position to be in. And I'll just say very quickly on the research side, like they literally would not write letters of support for me to apply for grants. So I could not build my portfolio in terms of academics because I I couldn't get you know, we all know the currency in research is these grants. And I I was not allowed to apply for them because they decided that they didn't want to support me because they had made some judgment about what kind of person or what kind of surgeon or whatever I was. And, you know, within a year of being in my current department, I got an R01, which is, you know, kind of like the big deal NIH grant within a year meaning the first time I tried, which is very unusual and I got lucky and I have great support and there's all sorts of reasons for that, but I wasn't even given the opportunity to to apply for those types of grants, which is harmful, not just for that job that I had, but then it makes it harder for me to make a case when I apply for other jobs that I should be given time for research because research is really important for me because they look at you and go like, okay, but like, what money are you bringing in? And just to be clear, everyone, the lack of support that you faced there was because why? This is a good question. I've obviously thought a lot about it. And I think it comes down to a number of different things. One, you know, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that in medicine, to kind of climb up and and get promoted into like a chief level or a chair level position in most places, you don't get promoted to those roles because you're an excellent mentor. It's usually because of either research productivity or service to the institution or maybe something else, but it's usually not anything to do with mentorship. In the same way that in universities, professors don't get 
promoted because of their teaching ability, right? They get promoted because of their research and their grants and, and, and that productivity. It's similar in medicine. And so you have people who are in a so-called leadership role who sometimes have literally zero leadership skills. On top of that, though, I think that there is a very strong current of me being a woman who speaks up when I feel things are not right, who advocates for myself, and who also advocates for other marginalized people. And all of those characteristics make me unlikable in our society. So that was part of it. And then the other part of it, I think, was the research that I wanted to do would expose problems in our culture and in medicine. But when you have people who are not real leaders, they see that as though you are trying to undermine them. So rather than let you do that work and try to solve that problem, they just want to squash you. And I think those are at least some of the things that were going on there. And admittedly, I'm not sitting here saying I am perfect, like by no means. I certainly made mistakes in the time that I spent there for sure. I do think though, and this is based on conversations I've had with a lot of surgeons at a lot of different places, that it would have been very difficult for pretty much anyone to survive the circumstances that I was put in. So the other thing I think was definitely at play, or at least cannot be underestimated, is that I am an immigrant from the Middle East, and I was living and working in the Midwest in the United States, where there is very little diversity, there is much less progressive thought, and a very strong current of xenophobia. So I do think that was another factor. How did that manifest? There is a very real challenge around intersectionality that we talk about a lot in diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So the intersectionality, the idea is that oftentimes people carry more than one marginalized identity, or there's more than one aspect of our identity that is marginalized. So it might be someone's race and their gender. For example, if you look at Black women or Latina women, or it might be your um, gender and your socioeconomic class. Or it might be multiples, right? It could be your sexual orientation and your gender and your socioeconomic class and your race. You know, there's no limit to the number of marginalized identities we can have, sadly. So one of the challenges around intersectionality is when someone who holds more than one mar marginalized identity has a negative experience with a person or with a system, you often don't know why. Are they saying this to me because I'm a woman? Are they saying this to me because I'm an immigrant? Are they saying this to me because they think I'm a terrorist? Are they saying this to me because they just don't like me? Like, why, why are they saying this to me? Why are they doing this to me? Very hard to disentangle on a practical, like, day-to-day -day basis. But I will say that there are specific things that happen that, that, Honestly, I had never experienced in California, not to say that California is perfect, but I just had not experienced these things here. So one is, you know, I was giving a talk for our hospital at another, it was like an outreach, um, you know, going to an outlying clinic to talk to them about bariatric surgery. And so they would know, you know, who to refer and what the process is and so on. 
And the person from my institution who had organized this trip for me says, oh, I see that you speak Farsi. How did you learn Farsi? Like they don't understand that I could (laughs) grow up learning. I mean, like, I don't know. I just thought that was very confusing to me. Like, how do you think I learned Farsi? Or do you even know what Farsi is? Or like, what? why are you asking this question? Like, it's very strange. And and this person is well-intentioned, right? Like, I'm not at all blaming this person for like wanting to make conversation, but it's a weird question. Like, do you not know that people from Iran speak Farsi? But anyway, that's one example. I'll give another example that I observed, which was a medical student who actually is from California, who was working with me. And let's just say her name was Sarah. This is not her real name, but let's say her name was Sarah. The circulating nurse says to her, and she's a important note, this student is Chinese, of uh, like her family is Chinese. She's born and raised in California. So the circulator, again, a very nice person, says to this student, Sarah, why didn't your parents give you an oriental name? I mean, like that's the type of stuff that would happen. So when you say, how does that manifest? Those are the types of things where you're like, people have never seen people like us, I guess, (laughs) in those spaces, which is so hard to understand when you live in, especially like in the Bay Area where we have so much diversity and so many languages people speak just on the street. So what was the research you were trying to do? So my research was then and continues to be related a lot to women in medicine and our experiences. I was able to do some really good work there despite all of this because there are amazing medical students and residents who I was honored to work with. And so we carried the work forward despite the lack of grant funding and the lack of institutional support. So some of the things that we published from my time there were about how we as physicians write our evaluations differently for men versus women in training and the types of words that we use that end up making the men sound better. Or another paper that we published from that time was looking at the level of implicit gender bias among healthcare workers and talking about how that sets up the situation wherein a woman physician talks to a patient, explains all the ins and outs of their disease and the treatment plan. And then the patient says, when am I going to see the doctor? And the ways that our work is undermined because people don't see us as physicians. So that was some of the work. And then one of the things that I think has been really impactful from that time was an interview study that we did interviewing surgeons to try to understand Um, challenges in how they set up their practice. So these were assistant professors all over the country. And we published this paper on one of the very clear themes that came out of that work, which was that they, both men and women surgeons, noticed an unequal expectation, an asymmetrical expectation between uh, men and women physicians, such that women physicians were expected to show up early and stay late, bake cookies, bring in brownies, do what we call performative niceness and do a lot of work building social capital with other members of the team just so they could get the care they needed for their patients so they could get cooperation for the care plan. And this is all additional labor that the men don't have to do. So that's some of the work that I was trying to do. You know, I I think one thing that is a little bit counterintuitive to trainees is that it, it feels like becoming an attending 
is the promised land, right? Like you're working and you're working and you're working and you're working. And then one day you like cross the finish line at the end of residency or fellowship or whatever the terminus your training is. And then now you've arrived, right? But as you say, particularly, I think there may be some more to that depending on sort of what your niche in medicine is and whether you're in academics or private practice and some other things. But certainly, especially if you're trying to set up a research career, in some ways it's more like the beginning than the end, right? Because you're applying for grant funding and you're trying to like establish yourself at a new institution and, and all those kinds of things. So you're in that really determinative period where you're trying to set yourself up for how you're going to move forward as, as, as an attending. And then you're being met with frustration left and right. You don't have the support that you need to succeed, all of that. So then what happens next? I think that we do our trainees a huge disservice in saying things like, just wait, it gets better. Because I heard that over and over again, you know, in medical school, the first two years, right, they say, oh, just wait till clinical, then it'll get better. And then you do that. And then you're like, but I can't do anything. I can't write any orders. I can't actually do anything to change the the path of these patients. And they say, oh, that's okay. It'll get better in residency because then you'll actually be able to do things even though we all acknowledge residency is very challenging for lots of reasons. Then in residency, because of all those challenges, people will dangle this carrot in front of you. Like it'll get better after this, whether it's a fellowship or you go straight into a job as an attending. But I, I mean, if I had probably even a nickel for every time I heard that, I think I'd have a lot of money. And that I don't think is necessarily true. I mean, there are some things that are better, undeniably, like the fact that most people will get a significant pay raise once they're in attending, obviously huge, cannot discount that. And the fact that you do start to have a little bit of control over your schedule. Now, how much varies a lot depending on what kind of work you do and where you are, but you can, in most circumstances, for example, block off a day because you need to have surgery, for example, yourself. Whereas as a resident, you have to ask permission from all sorts of people to, you know, figure out coverage and Anyway, so I do think there are things like that that are that truly are better, but wow, there's so much that's worse um, in my estimation, you know, in terms of impact on the person's mental health and their ability to live a life. So I think the immense responsibility that comes with being the name on the chart, being the one who's making the decision, if you're a conscientious person who cares, that is a very heavy weight. Then there's, depending again on what specialty you go into, but for someone like me in surgery, there's the being on call every few days and getting woken up throughout the night and, you know, having to maybe go into the hospital in the middle of the night to do surgery for somebody, the giving up every however many weekends to be able to be on call for, you know, from Friday morning to Monday morning and not be able to really do anything in that many hours and to repeat that week after week, month after month, year after year. That kind of toll, I think, is very difficult to understand when you're more junior. So there there are things like that that I think are, you know, obviously inherent in the system. And that's going to be true wherever you go, but make it really hard to live life as a, as a human and to, you know, have time off and to get away from your inbox and to be able to have family and friends and, and go to birthday parties and weddings and funerals and so on. 
I think those challenges persist once you're in attending. It's just a little bit different in how you navigate them. You know, someone might say, well, what did you think was going to happen when you moved to the Midwest? And I was naive, to be honest. Like, I knew it was going to be different for sure. But I I did not realize how much of a step back in time it would be. It really felt to me like I was stepping back 15 to 20 years in time. So, okay, so what did you do? Oh, so then I left. <laughs> okay, but <laughs> so, okay, let me back up a little bit. Like, I can imagine that in the process leading up to deciding to leave that position had to be pretty tortured, right? Like you're grappling with, I would imagine, questions about what is this going to do to my career and where am I going to go from here? And what does this mean about who I'm going to be as a surgeon and like all that kind of stuff. And so, but then on the other hand, you have all of these feelings that you've been describing about not being supported and not be, you know, all of that. So all of that is to say like, what was making that decision like? And how did, how was it that that ended up, that leaving ended up being the decision that went out? And then where did you go next? The challenge is, especially when you have your first job, you feel like so much pressure to prove yourself. And this is another thing where people say it gets better. You think like, oh, as a third year student, I have to prove myself. Then I have to like match. I have to prove myself. Then I'm now I'm a resident. Oh, wait, every single rotation, I still have to prove myself. And then, you know, whether you go on to fellowship or not, then you get your next, your job as an attending. And all of a sudden you have to prove yourself. Like you, <laughs> every step you have to prove yourself because there's so much mistrust in medicine. And there's so much criticism. I would say it's a hypercritical environment. So you're constantly proving yourself. So within the first year was when they started saying I couldn't apply for grants. And I remember there was a faculty member from where I trained um, as a resident who said, oh, no, you cannot stay there. That's them telling you they don't support you. You need to leave. And I thought, but I've only been here a year. If I look for a job now, that'll be a, a red flag right? Because you hear this. And so you're, like you said, they're doing these calculations all the time. Like, how long do I have to stay here before I leave? It's so that doesn't look suspicious to people because people don't honestly have the bandwidth to engage with what's true. They just have, what does it look like? And that's really all. And they make judgments based on that. So if you leave somewhere too early, or at least this is the concern, then people will tend to think that you are the problem. And I will say right now that that was flawed thinking. If I had just left right then, I might still be doing surgery. To be honest, I might not, but I might. Because what ended up happening was I did what I think many people do, which is I tried to contort myself. What if I do this? What if I do that? What if I shift this? If I do this uh, extra strategy, if I have these meetings, if I get a coach, if I see a therapist, if I try to do like all these million things, in the meantime, my mental health is going in the toilet because I feel like I'm the worst thing that ever existed. And I've never felt that way in my life because, again, I'm privileged. And so at some point, you realize that this is not sustainable, that you you cannot live this way. And often, as was the case with me, the people there also send you signals. They do not want you there. So then you're like, you don't want me here and I don't want to be here. So let me just GTFO, bro. And so you try. And then that is hard too. Because why? Because then they undermine your efforts to get another job. Because all it takes to sabotage someone's efforts is to say things like, yeah, she's fine. That's it. And everyone knows what that means. 
I had looked at a number of academic surgery jobs that mostly felt like there was a high risk that they would be the same thing, but just in a new town where I also didn't know anyone. And I was at such a low point mentally and emotionally that I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't go lower, couldn't afford that risk. I ended up deciding, I mean, I, I this was a, a, an intentional choice that I decided I was going to choose geography over career, choose myself over a career and move back to California where I had friends and family and accepted that that would mean not taking a surgery job because there was not one available to me. I did try to find one, but did not. And so I moved back for a low paying job that at least let me be home. And that was really critical in rebuilding my career from there. One thing that I wanted to draw out there that you just mentioned in passing, but that I think is really fundamentally important for especially younger listeners is that you said that at the end of all of this mental and emotional back and forth, that you made the decision that you were going to prioritize yourself over your career. And the reason that I want to draw that out is because I think that one of the most poisonous parts of the unwritten curriculum in medicine is that there is no such thing as a difference between yourself and your career, that your career is yourself, right? And because medicine is such a competitive, and as you put it earlier, hypercritical environment, if you allow yourself to buy into the mindset where your career comes to constitute yourself, that's so incredibly dangerous and toxic. Because what it effectively does is it effectively hands other people the ability to measure and modify and determine literally yourself, right? So when you don't get a job or you don't get a grant or your attending says something bad about you or this or that or whatever it is, you are subject to self-determination by other people. And it, and it's totally understandable, right? Because medicine requires such a wholesale self-dedication that it's, you know, if you're in the middle of your fifth year of residency and you're working 90 hour weeks, it's pretty hard not to fall into that mindset, right? Because like, what else is yourself other than that? I mean, that's how it, that's not true, but that's how it feels, right? And I think that's a, a fundamentally important point to hold on to, but hard. It is really hard. And and I would just like to point out that, as they say, I think this is a feature, not a bug. Like this is what the system wants. And by the system, what I mean is healthcare systems and administrators and the people who are making money off of the life-saving work that physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers do. What they want is for us to think that we are this healthcare worker identity. So I am a doctor. That is who I am. That is what I am. That is all I am. Because if you have that singular identification, then of course you will work extra hours. You will come early. You will stay late. You will do all the things that they need for documentation. So they get the money so that they can keep going on their vacations and whatever it is. And I'm being a little bit 
not nice to healthcare administrators. And I don't mean it personally for any of them, but if you look at salaries and stuff and who's making decisions, like I can't see how they come out looking good, but that's what they want. And that's how we're trained. I mean, even if you look at a few years back, I don't know if you remember this, but the ACGME added a clause about well-being in their program requirements. Mm-hmm. And this was a big deal because they didn't have anything before about needing to support trainees' well-being. And so they put some verbiage up on their website and asked for comment. And you know what they said in their in their section on clinician well-being, on trainee well-being, they said Patients always come first. But then after that, you should think about yourself. This this reminds me of the fact that the ACGME, when I was a resident, added a requirement that all residencies had to show their trainees a video every year about the importance of good sleep hygiene. And I would watch it and then I would get done and I would be like, literally, the only point of me watching this video is so that I can click the bubble on the ACGME survey that says that I watched the video on sleep maintenance, because I'm working 30 hour shifts every fourth day, like what the? (laughs) And I mean, I think we've all or many of us have had the experience of being post-call after a 24-hour shift and sitting in a lecture, like a Grand Rounds type lecture on (laughs) sleep and falling asleep during the lecture, because what should be happening is I should be home. I should not be here listening to you lecture me about sleep. I should actually be getting sleep. Like what? It's so messed up. Argavan, it's been so great talking to you, and we appreciate all of the searingly honest stories you've told us. As we near the end of our time here, I feel somewhat obligated to steer our conversation towards what we can do to fix the problems you've mentioned. I know you're currently involved in many diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. So what are some concrete things institutions should bear in mind when trying to make things better for their clinicians? I I think that the biggest work is changing the systems and the structures. The more we talk about what individuals should be doing differently, the less anything changes. And not to say that we don't all as individuals matter. Absolutely, we do. And there are things we all should be doing. And I can mention some of those. But the biggest thing is going to be demanding better for ourselves and for our colleagues. Like, I'm so inspired by all these residents who are unionizing. That's just amazing. It, that obviously could never have happened when I was in training. It didn't happen when I was in training. I mean, there was University of Michigan has had a longstanding resident union, but that's it. So those are the types of things that really need to happen is we need to be rethinking what should it mean to be a trainee in medicine? What kind of hours make sense? What kind of salary makes sense? What kind of parental leave makes sense? Because I'll tell you, none of that right now makes sense in the current system that we have. In the meantime, since we're working in this very flawed system, I think it's really important to try to have grace with each other. And that's really challenging. And I definitely haven't always been able to do that. But that means when a student or a resident needs to go to a doctor's appointment or be gone for a day or whatever it is, instead of the kind of knee-jerk traditional response, which is this person doesn't care, this person's not invested, this person's not going to be a good doctor or whatever nonsense people have been trained to think because that's what people said to us when we were in training. What we should be thinking is that is amazing. I am so glad that you are standing up for yourself and taking the space that you need. Like that's the reaction that we should have because 
that's better for all of us. And I think there's a lot of resentment. Like this is always the case that older generations are resentful of younger generations because things change and they're like, well, I walked uphill both ways in snow, et cetera. And so you should too, which is a really flawed thinking because if it was awful for you, why should you want it to be awful for anyone else? I've really never understood that. Like if it was awful for you, you should be motivated to change it. So it's not awful for anyone else. And for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to be what happens, not just in medicine, but like anywhere. So individuals need to give each other grace. We need to prioritize our humanity above all else. I really believe that. Like we are people who need to eat and sleep and go to the bathroom and take care of ourselves. That is all fundamental before we can memorize the Krebs cycle and do whatever else, take a 24 hour shift or, you know, operate in the middle of the night or whatever. Like we can't do any of that if we're not taking care of our own human needs. And so we have to not only do that for ourselves and role model it for other people, but then support other people when they do that too, so that we can change the culture. And I I think another thing that we're really working on is creating a culture of feedback where it's not punitive to give people feedback on something. And this is in particular, I'm talking about related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So things like, you know, if someone does make an inappropriate comment about gender or race or sexual orientation or anything like that, what we want is a culture wherein someone can say, hey, I'm, I'm not sure you meant it this way, but what you just said actually was transphobic. And then the reaction for that person should be, oh, thank you so much for letting me know. Like that's the culture that we need where we can give each other that kind of feedback and say, oh gosh, thank you so much. I appreciate it because it's hard to give feedback. It is much easier to just let it all go. And then that's when the toxicity all continues because nobody ever intervenes. So that's, I think, a really crucial shift that we need to make. Well, you have been so generous with your time and so honest with your experiences. We really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jagavan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining our conversation on this week's episode of The Doctor's Art. You can find program notes and transcripts of all episodes at thedoctorsart.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. Available for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to share the podcast with any friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy the program. And if you know of a doctor, patient, or anyone working in healthcare who would love to explore meaning in medicine with us on the show, feel free to leave a suggestion in the comments. I'm Henry Bear, And I'm Tyler Johnson. We hope you can join us next time. Until then, be well.